Ag State of Mind, Episode 67. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. Hello and welcome back to the Ag State of Mind podcast, a proud member of the Global Ag Network. I am your host, Jason Meadows, and today on the show, we speak to Kara Harbstreet. We're continuing our January theme of speaking about health and nutrition, and Kara is a registered dietitian, and she does some really fascinating work. She has so much content online. She is a really great follow all across social media, and we talk a little bit just about her journey through dietetic school and her journey through the dietitian pers- uh, profession in just some just some really fascinating stuff and uh, I I really I learned a lot from this I feel like a lot of people are going to take a lot from it and you know I text Kara after we had the got done with the podcast and I told her that uh, I I really it was really one of my most enjoyable conversations um, because I, I honestly, I learned so much and uh, found everything that she's doing fascinating. So really excited for you guys to hear from her and listen to this podcast. Um, all right, here we go. Here it is, my interview with Kara Harbstreet. All right, Kara, welcome to the Ag State of Mind podcast. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Uh, we talked before as we're recording this. It's a couple of days before Christmas and I'm just getting over uh, COVID. So I'm finally feeling back to normal. <laughs> yeah, well, the timing's great for recording in that case. I mean, it's it's a busy time of the year, but even more so when you layer that into things. Right, of course. Yeah. I mean, you just, you, you didn't think the holiday season could get any harder and then, you know, something like that happens. But uh, yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you. And- yeah, I'm sure we'll get into some juicy stuff. I know. I'm really excited for this one. So to, to start off, just kind of tell everybody your story, your backstory, you know, where how you grew up and kind of how you ended up where you're at now. Sure, sure. So I'm Kara, of course. I am a registered dietitian and my my company is Street Smart Nutrition. So I grew up, you know, pretty you know, typical Midwest upbringing. I'm in Kansas city right now, which, you know, is more or less where I've lived my whole life. And I grew up in an area about an hour Southeast of the main Metro area. So if anyone's familiar, um, we were on a little stretch on seven highway with pretty much nothing around. And, you know, at the time it, it never really occurred to me that ag would come full circle and, and be part of the work that I do now as a dietitian. But that's always kind of an, an interesting caveat. But yeah, I was an athlete all through high school and was really fortunate to be able to compete at the next level as a high jumper in college. So I attended Southeast Missouri State University, which is in Cape Girardeau, a little bit south of St. Louis. And yeah, the other side of the state. Really. Yep. Yep. I got about as far away as I could without going truly out of state. But it was down there that, you know, I, I was just happy to be there, you know, happy to be on the track team, kind of doing my thing and figuring things out. And after about a year and a half or so, you know, you get to that point where your advisor is knocking on your door and saying, hey, like, you got to pick a major, you got to figure something out. 
And at the time I had been taking just general ed classes, kind of the the variety that most incoming students are are required to take. But one that always really stood out for me was actually a course outside of the department that I ended up in, and it was in the ag school. So it was a class called World Food and Agriculture. And to me, it was actually the first time that I realized like, oh, hey, people take an interest in food and actually make a career out of it. You know, up until that point, I really had no idea that a registered dietitian was a thing. I had no concept of what that career path looked like, but this course was really connecting the dots between different food cultures and food systems from around the world and how that could translate into different careers that were sort of woven into the food industry as a whole. So to me, I thought, hey, okay, I'm really interested in food. You know, with my background as an athlete, sports nutrition was coming onto my radar as as an interest and yeah, everything kind of aligned to where I graduated, spent a little bit of time in in St. Louis, and then came back to Kansas City to finish my degree and jump through all the hoops to finally become a registered dietitian. So to, uh, to make a longer story a little bit shorter, I worked in some pretty traditional dietetic settings with some of the hospital systems in the area. And then I, I was really looking for a creative outlet. I've always been interested in you know, writing and, you know, food styling and recipes and cooking in the kitchen and all the rest. So I had started some social media platforms and that transitioned into a little bit of food blogging. And then what became sort of this loose, like side hustle and sort of air quotes. But at some point I kind of realized, okay, hey, you know, this could actually be a, a business. Like this might actually sustain the the type of lifestyle that I want to have. It might actually be more lucrative than these other positions as a dietitian. So yeah, after kind of playing in both fields for about a year, I finally made the decision in 2017 to step away from my corporate job. And I've been full-time self-employed ever since. That's incredible. I, I, I love whenever you can, to hear the story of getting your degree, but then going and working for someone else. And then, you know, it didn't really start out where you wanted to do all this just all on your own, but it ended up that way. And I just, to me, that's, that's America. That's like the American dream. And I, I think that's so cool that you were able to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I have the perspective to fully appreciate it now, but trust me at the time I was cursing it up and down and yeah. It oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. it was, it was a bit of a unique situation because my first job out of my master's program was one that I loved. It was a great fit for me. I really loved the people that I worked with, but through a series of rather unfortunate events and some corporate reshuffling, you know, they just didn't have the budget to sustain that position. So on pretty short notice, it was more or less pulled out from under me and then facing a choice of, all right, where do I go next? What do I want to do if I had if I had the choice or if I was lucky enough to be able to choose what, what would I want to do? And those are the questions that sort of put me in the direction that got me to where I am now. So I'm going to ask the question here. You grew up around Kansas city, but you lived in St. Louis for a while and you're back to Kansas city. Is, is that like indicative of how you felt about St. Louis? Oh, I had a feeling that was the question. Actually, <laughs> I thought I was going to about barbecue because there is a difference. Oh, no, 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 no. Between... No, I know the difference there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I loved it. To be honest, you know, I, I love the area that I was in and I had a pretty cool job while I was there. I mean, that gap year was not planned, but I, I landed in a, a pretty cool position with Anheuser-Busch. So I was working at the brewery 
in uh, wow. their you know tech department basically doing QA for for new beers and you know development of new product running taste panels and yeah it was a really unique experience and and that really helped me feel at home in that area plus my mom is originally from that area she grew up there so i had some familiarity with the the city itself but yeah there's nothing like coming back home i mean kansas city is where my family has put down roots and it looks like for the foreseeable future this is where i'll stay yeah i mean I, it's a big argument for people you know wherever they whatever side of the state oh, yeah. and oh, you know yeah. i think it's always st louis is always considered the westernmost eastern city and then kansas yep. city the easternmost western city and it's true they're like it's like night and day between the two i feel like and i have a preference for kansas city i think but that's uh, for personal reasons i went to school in st louis and yeah oh they definitely have a a different sure. vibe you kind of sense it i totally agree <laughs> i totally agree so and you know this is something that we talked about a little bit before we started recording and i'd like to hit on this with you. you you mentioned about how you left went and you were an athlete and you went to college did that so i mean obviously nutrition was a huge part of of what you did and then you kind of decided to go down that career path but in reading and hearing you speak before it sounded like that you started to almost have an unhealthy relationship with food. And I'd like to hear the story of how that kind of shifted for you. Yeah. So interestingly, that didn't really show up for me at all until I, I actually ended up in my dietetics program. So, you know, okay. in, in high school, I was, like I said, very, very active. I mean, my dad would joke that I had a, a hollow leg and, you know, learning <laughs> to cook some simple meals on my own, you know, cooking with my dad. Those are some of the things I, I really enjoyed. And, you know, my, my sister was also busy. My dad, my mom, we were all just running around like crazy, but those family meals were where we kind of, you know, came back into each other's orbit sometimes. And I always had a, a really neutral, if not positive relationship with food. And then, you know, I went from a really small town, a very small high school, and it was one of those instances where you go from being sort of the big fish in the little pond, and then you're like tossed out into the ocean. And holy crap, yeah. I, mean, I, can, I can relate to that totally. Like, <laughs> you, I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it really wasn't until I was out on my own, you know, first living in the dorms, and then later, you know, my own apartment with either roommates or living alone that I was looking at things like, okay, I, I have to make these food choices for myself and, you know, I have to cook for myself and make these decisions. And that was coinciding with some scrutiny and pressure from, from being an athlete, you know, the, the uniforms in track, I'm not sure if anyone follows the sport, but <laughs> they're, they're following the trends of everything else. And that comparison started to creep in where I never really had this strong, awareness of my body or what, you know, what it looked like, but all of a sudden, you know, you, you kind of glance out of the corner of your eye and you start thinking and second guessing. And that was, that was really the first time that that ever showed up for me. And then, you know, I mentioned in, in traditional dietetics education, it's really rooted in, you know, a lot of very weight centric or weight normative types of approaches, which is kind of a fancy way of just saying, you know, we really promote and, and learn how to induce weight loss. And so some of the behaviors or habits that I picked up 
you know, were really put on my radar by certain projects or assignments that we were given in my, in my classes. So one example, I remember this really, really clearly because I, I went in, into my phone, downloaded the MyFitnessPal app because we were asked to do like a week-long diet history download everything, crunch the numbers, and basically give an analysis and critique our own diets. And after that, you know, that became a, a really big obsession, you know, taking the time to scan labels and estimate portion sizes and just getting really wrapped up in the numbers. Um, but that was one of the first ways that, you know, like I said, that relationship with food that had once been pretty neutral or, or positive really started to deteriorate. That's, I mean, I think that's, I think everybody can probably relate. And I think it is around, regardless if you're in athletics or not, I think college is that time where you really start to, because that's, I think that's when I started to have a, an unhealthy, I don't want to say unhealthy relationship with food, but um, I kind of started to notice a few things. And, and I think that may surprise some people that, that, that men deal with this too, because I definitely do. And, you know, I remember I came back from college the first time and I put on some weight. I mean, I was an athlete in college or in high school, played football. I mean, ate all the time, whatever I wanted to. And then I stopped doing all that stuff and went straight to school. And obviously I put on weight and everything. And like, everybody talked about it. Everybody noticed. And like, that's really like, that really affected me and still affects me to this day. You know, obviously I'm, tr I'm much more mature and grown now and, and can handle it. But, uh, you know, that's, I think that's something that a lot of people deal with is, is that outside pressure that comes with food and what the effects of it are. Yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate that you mentioned, you know, this, this isn't exclusive to, you know, young girls or women or a certain, you know, stereotype of who you picture when you hear disordered eating or eating disorder. I really picture it as a spectrum because, you know, we think of that stereotypical vision of what an eating disorder may look like, but in reality, there's an entire spectrum from, you know, these really strict food rules to, you know, trying every fad diet under the sun to, you know, any number of other ways that it manifests or shows up. But then that same pressure that you mentioned is, is really placed on all of us. Our, our culture, unfortunately, has a really strong bias towards a certain, you know, look, if you will. So, mm -hmm. you know, these beauty standards or this ideal body type, it does look different between the genders, but at the same time, you know, that, that similarity between it is that there's this expectation of what you should quote unquote look like for health. And one of the things that I really focus on in my work now is trying to challenge that belief and really get curious about, okay, what is it that we believe about health? And is this aligning with what we're currently doing? Or, you know, are there ways that we can still support better health without fixating on, you know, the number on the scale or what our bodies look like? So at, at what point did it change for you? Like, where did the, the road shift to, what, to what, how you view it now? That's a good question because, you know, I think a lot of times people do have sort of a light bulb or aha moment. Mm -hmm. And for me, that never really happened. It was more okay. like this gradual evolution where I had, you know, spent some time identifying as a, a vegetarian. You know, I cut mm -hmm. out meat from my diet for a while. And that was at the time something I thought was truly beneficial for my health. In hindsight, I see now that it really was more about control and trying to just 
find out who I am and what I'm doing out there. But, you know, with that, it was my own kind of personal progress in moving past some of those hangups around food and eating. And then at the same time, I was working as a dietitian and, you know, connecting with lots of other people in the field, uh, creating some closer friendships with people who are really similar to me. And I actually joined a, a mastermind group where, you know, some of us would get together both for accountability and just for, for support and kind of commiserating sometimes. But I was learning a ton from them because they were a little bit further along on this, this evolution than I was. And just realizing like, Hey, the, the way that I was taught or the way that this education was structured for me doesn't have to be taken as gospel. Like this isn't the, the end all be all of what it looks like to pursue good health. And the, the other part of it too, is in working with some of the, the clients that I had at the time in either a corporate wellness setting or out in the community, I was realizing like, Hey, what I was taught to do and how we're approaching it isn't actually working. It's either not working for their goals or it's not working for their budget or their lifestyle or just what they want to get out of it. So I was really forced to take a step back and just kind of ask myself, like, do I really think that I'm helping here? Like, that's the whole point of, of doing what I'm doing. I, I want to help people, but I started questioning if that was truly the way to do it. And, you know, was, was fortunate to be able to back away from it a little bit to invest in some ongoing education and learning from other sources. And by the time I finally came back to it, I was really ready to say like, Hey, this isn't what I believe anymore. And this isn't how I'm going to practice anymore. So you, you, you mentioned, and I know we, I know this is kind of where our Brandy buzzard, she is the one that put us together. And because I originally sent out the tweet uh, talking, wanting to talk to dietitians about the role of meat in a healthy diet. And it kind of snowballed into an effect of where I'm talking to multiple people. And you're just one of the people who in this, in this series that I'm talking about this to. And so you talked about being a vegetarian. Why did you make that decision initially? Yeah. So like I said, I had that gap year in St. Louis that was unplanned. So the process to become a dietitian is a bit convoluted. So you have to do your undergrad and then you apply for this internship. And until you complete that internship, you're not eligible to take the registered dietitian exam. You can't be credentialed. You can't you know, cross your T's and dot your I's to be a dietitian. And it's a bit like a draft pick. I mean, you send out your applications mm. to all these programs scattered across you know, wherever you think you might land, but the match rate is, is very, very low. So roughly half of the interns who apply, or I guess I should say potential interns who apply don't match. And so that first round, I was one of them and it really leaves you in this scrambling kind of chaotic state because your best laid plans have now changed in really short order. And so I think for me, that decision was partly just grasping for a sense of control. Like, okay, I, this, this part of my life is out of my hands right now. I can't do anything about it, but here's something that I can control and that I can focus on. And this was also coinciding with the rise of Netflix. And I was pretty susceptible to some of the documentaries or the media messages mm -hmm. because it was the very first time that I had any type of freedom with my personal time. You know, I graduated, I wasn't wrapped up in homework and assignments and structured learning. So I was like gobbling up every resource I could because it was just so exciting at the time to think like, hey, I don't have to learn what they want me to learn. I can learn about 
anything I want. So, you know, I was, I was really, I guess, susceptible to, to hearing those without necessarily realizing that I needed to balance that out and see the other side of that same coin. So as I started to, to really get into it, I, I recognize now, I don't know if I saw this at the time, but I had these weird like food rules where I would try to rationalize some of the things around eating meat. So, you know, like seafood, for example, was always pretty neutral. I was like, eh, fish, whatever. I like it. I'll eat it. But with things like beef, you know, I was really hesitant to eat it because if I didn't know where it came from or it was really expensive, I had like all these justifications around it. And then, you know, with my dad, like I said, growing up in a rural area, he's not at all unique in that he loves to deer hunt and duck hunt. And I had kind of weird rules around, okay, well, if my dad harvests the deer and makes this recipe that I love. I'll eat the venison, but not the bacon that it's wrapped in. And just, you know, kind of weird stuff like that. So it's not that I didn't enjoy eating meat or that I wasn't craving it at times, but it was really driven by just mistrust and a lack of information. So when I, you know, moved through that phase, it was almost like just realizing, okay, this, this type of lifestyle isn't true to who I am. It's not leaving me in a state where I feel physically good. I'm also not really emotionally good around, around food right now. So at that point, I had fortunately connected with some of the local ag groups. So, you know, the farm bureaus for the respective states, you know, Kansas City being on top of the state line makes that a little bit easier. But just getting face to face with some farmers through the programs that they run and challenging some of the things that I, I thought I knew to be true, those were some of the things that started to put me much more at ease with understanding where food came from, what that meant for me, and how to make a choice that I ultimately felt confident and empowered in making. That's incredible. Like, I mean, I, I, I love that you were just able to figure out and make your own decision about it and come to your own conclusions about it because there is, there's so much misinformation out there around food in general. And especially, I mean, for me, I'm a cattle producer and that is, you know, that's something I think we fight with so much is there's so much misinformation. There's so much negative coming from that consumer side on that. So to hear someone who's kind of in the middle there, like you are, uh, kind of almost as a conduit that, that you came to this information and came to this understanding and, and place that you're at now uh, is really comforting because there's, there's a lot of people who don't get to that point. And, you know, I'm not still, I'm still not sure why other than just maybe it's a little bit of stubbornness, not, I don't know. I, I don't know why that is, but uh, it, it's refreshing to know that there are people like you who, who are doing those things and, and it makes, makes, gives us hope as producers. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the things for me, you know, as I started going to farms and having the chance to, to have conversations, one of the, the patterns that really stood out for me was a complete open door policy. I mean, the amount of transparency that you know, these, these farmers and ranchers were giving us was something that honestly, I, I didn't expect. I mean, I had no expectations going in as far as what I 
would or wouldn't hear, would or wouldn't see. But, you know, they, they really tackled my hardest questions head on. And they were really honest about saying, you know, I, I don't know if I can answer that, but I think I know someone who can. And just a willingness to bring me into their network. And I think that was encouraging to just keep asking more questions because in my mind, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, like the big bad food industry. And even as a dietitian, I mean, even knowing as much as I did at that point about food, you know, even I still had a hard time wrapping my head around that. So it was really just seeing, you know, Hey, these are, these are not bad people. The food is not out to get me. There's not, you know, anything to be outright afraid of, or, you know, on the flip side of that too, it was also looking at, okay, let me just find out as much as I can um, and then make a decision that at the end of the day, I personally can feel good about and leave whatever bias I may have lingering out of the picture when I'm talking to other people. Yeah. And, and gosh, that's a valuable perspective to have. It's lacking and uh, it's, it's good to know that, that it's there. So I'm going to, I'm going to shift a little bit. And I, I didn't, again, this is something I didn't ask, didn't prepare you for, but I know you talk about it a lot and that's, that's intuitive eating. And I truly don't know much about it. When I, my wife was asking me who I was uh, doing a podcast with and I told her, I told her about you and uh, shared her Instagram with you. And she said, Oh, she does intuitive eating. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. So please enlighten me. And so I can. Yes. Well, no preparation needed. This is one of my all time favorite topics because I think that it has so much potential to get people, you know, to just, think a little bit differently or get curious about food. So it's essentially a a framework. There are 10 principles of intuitive eating, and this was created by two dietitians back in the the 90s. So it's, it's not super old, but it's also not brand new. I think it's now becoming a little bit trendier as people catch on and, and realize that it's becoming more popular. But yeah, I mean, it was started by, by a couple of dietitians who were in a similar boat. The original book, it's now in its fourth edition, but the original book I think is quite different than the current state today because at that point, I think it was framed as an approach for, for sustainable weight loss, which can be an oxymoron of sorts. But with this approach, these 10 principles are really designed to help you kind of confront uh, you know, whatever internalized beliefs or food rules you've absorbed from living in you know, diet culture, which is the overall system that what we talked about earlier with this preference for certain body types, this pressure to always lose weight for, for your health. And it's, it's really a way of combining, you know, the emotional and psychological aspects of eating, emphasizing things like pleasure and enjoyment, while also balancing that with rational choice and and knowledge. So nutrition is absolutely still a big piece of it. And I think that's one of the biggest myths about it being that it was created by dietitians, it's a really natural alignment that we would still incorporate some of that nutrition knowledge into this approach. Well, I mean, it, it, there is, there's like, there's so much, I, I think when we hear the word diet, I think it has a, has a really negative connotation. And when we say diet, diet, we think of restriction and we think of cutting things out. But in reality, what a diet is, is just the food that you need to eat to 
not only sustain your body and sustain energy, but also it is, you, you did, you mentioned that, that it is a source of pleasure. It's a source of enjoyment. It's a source of, there's so much culture that's, that's built around food. And I mean, it's a, it's a, for us, it's a huge family thing. We love to, I don't cook. Um, I just don't, but we, I, I, I love to eat. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we talk, you know, for our family, I mean, it's that's something we, we truly enjoy is eating together and trying new foods and to change the framework around food, uh, change the, the perspective and the paradigm to, to something that it's, it's something diet is not something that should be restrictive. It's something that it's a, it's a journey, not a destination. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it because I, when I work with people, it's really not about, okay, what's your goal? My goal is to be an intuitive eater. So at that point we kind of back up a little and we say, well, it's a, it's a practice, you know, kind of like a yoga instructor might say that yoga is a practice. You're kind of continuously evolving. You may regress in certain areas while, you know, making leaps and bounds in others. And so for, for all of this, at the end of the day, one of the commonalities behind all of the 10 principles is that you're kind of putting on blinders in a sense, or, you know, putting in earplugs to just tune out all this external noise, you know, from the food rules to the restrictive meal plans to, you know, that offhand comment that your doctor makes when you go in for a visit. And, you know, it's just turning inwards to kind of relearn what your body was born knowing how to do. So often we'll, we'll point to really young kids as an example and say, you know, there's this in, inborn knowledge of, you know, when you're hungry, you're going to see signs of that. You know, when kids are full, like, you know, they kind of naturally back away. And at the end of the day, they grow and they thrive, you know, as long as everything is sort of, you know, working as intended and, and, you know, everything's provided. And what we start to learn when we get into our, our older years is all of a sudden we're overriding those body cues or that sensation of hunger and fullness. And we're basically outsourcing our food decisions to those diets or meal plans mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. And before long, we're very disconnected from even just recognizing hunger. And it, it can sound like a kind of silly topic, like, oh, relationship with food. Like, that's not a thing. Like you can't be in a relationship with food, but it's also about just how you relate to food. So if it's helpful to think of it that way, it's like how you relate to food, how you relate to your body. And in the moment, you know, your choices may look different than they did in the past and they'll likely look different again in the future. So removing the judgment from that is also a huge piece of it because the guilt and the shame that results from food choices is really a hallmark of, of how diets sustain themselves. There's a reason why we tend to go back to the same ones over and over again because they didn't work the last time around. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about that. Um, I get really, I, I really, I'm truly intrigued by by what you have to say because it's very refreshing. So I, I just find myself just lost in listening to you. So I, I think it's great what you're doing. Yeah, I think for, you know, for a lot of people, it can seem out of reach. And that's maybe one of the biggest things that I want to share about intuitive eating is that it doesn't have to feel so so aspirational that you can't have that for yourself. So, you know, like you were just saying, when we were talking about redefining what the word diet means, you know, even if someone 
has a food intolerance or food allergy, you know, even if someone has to, you know, follow a certain type of diet for a, a diagnosis that they have, you know, that's a, that's where nutrition comes back into the picture. And we say, okay, if we're really serious about respecting your individual unique body, and we understand that nutrition offers a way to do that, how can we do that in a way that provides you the tools that you need to really care for yourself without these outside influences? And, and that's where, again, it's, it can seem like a lofty goal, but there are 10 principles and there's a way to almost pick and choose what you want to apply and when. So if you have budget constraints, you know, it can feel rather elitist to say, oh, just pick some foods to reintroduce, go out, buy them and try them at home. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's not realistic. Right. And I understand that there's a lot of limitations in using this framework, but that's where it intersects with some other approaches. And we can really put the client or the individual person at the center instead of me as the dietitian or the doctor as a healthcare professional, you know, we're putting that person in the center and saying, okay, what do we need to do to make this work for you? And when we say work, you know, again, kind of in air quotes, mm -hmm. <laughs> I do that a lot and on podcasts, it doesn't work as well. <laughs> but you know, when we say that something is working, we're also questioning, what does that mean? Is it working if it leads to weight loss, but overall happiness declines? Is it working if the opposite happens, but weight doesn't change? You know, we have to really dig into some really tough questions and, and be brave and honest with how we respond to those questions. I love it. I love your perspective and your point of view. I mean, I, I keep saying that, but I mean, I think it's, it's uh, the refreshing still is the word that comes to mind. Uh, another thing that you have on your website and you, you talk about is health at every size. And this hits home for me a lot because of you talk about a perceived image of what healthy is and what is that? Uh, you said something, I think in your bio once about you being the picture of health and like, what does that even mean? And you, you know, I mean, that's such a health is such a, or should be a, such an individualized custom almost thing. But like it, it is, it is for me, for example, me, I'm a guy who's big. I'm a big guy. You know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to tell people I wear a double XL t-shirt but I also run, I've ran a thousand miles this year. I mean, I, you know, so I mean, health looks different for so many people. So tell, tell me about that and tell me how you arrived at that. Yeah. So health at every size is one of those other intersecting approaches that I, I mentioned earlier. So it is a, a trademark name. This originated years and years ago through the work of different fat activists and other people who are really looking at sort of the, the social justice component of health, how we look at it, how we approach it and all the rest. And it, it is similar to intuitive eating in that it has really a, a structure or kind of an outline of how you go about it. So with haze or health at every size, there's five tenets. And what it's really looking at is, okay, we're saying not that everyone is healthy at every size or healthy at any size, we're saying that there are health promoting behaviors that we can choose to pursue or support someone in following regardless of what their body looks like. And for me, I was really attracted to that because like you were just saying, you know, I was seeing clients who by any definition or on paper, you know, we're living this quote unquote 
very healthy life. You know, they were active, you know, I'd go through food recalls with them and we'd review what they ate. And I was like, I really have no changes to make. This looks amazing. And yet at the same time, they were hearing a lot of pressure from their referring doctor or family or friends, or even themselves about this desire for weight loss, regardless of, of what, you know, labs might look like or other things. And and one thing that is um, is worth really pointing out, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, is that weight stigma and fat phobia in our society is one of the biggest detractors from overall health. You know, if you mm-hmm. have lived in a larger body, which I, I never have, I don't have that lived experience. And so I'm absolutely not the right person to try and imagine or describe what that is like. But I can say that in healthcare and in our approaches to health up until this point, it can be incredibly stigmatizing and downright traumatic to have to deal with that, you know, in the absence of, of any input from you. Our, our approach to health is very authoritative. It's very rigid. It's very structured. And it views a body that isn't the quote unquote picture of health as something that's broken and that needs to be fixed. And that's where I really took issue with that traditional approach that I had been educated in. And one of the reasons that I invested so deeply in in learning more about this, because ultimately at the end of the day, my desire is to help. It's not to induce harm or make a bad experience for someone who, who does want to pursue health. And so that was one of the big reasons that I came back to things and said, all right, here's my line in the sand. This is what I won't do anymore. So I, I actually, I can speak to that and attest to this kind of what you're saying, uh, where you said you can't speak to it. I, I can, because there was a point in my life, which wasn't terribly long ago. It's probably longer ago than I probably realized now that I'm thinking about it. It's probably, well, I guess it was 13 years ago when I was much, much lighter, but there was no way I was healthier. So, so just getting back to what you're saying, health is so much different. I mean, it's so health and, and, and what you're talking about, fat phobia, uh, body image. Uh, so that, that I'll just give a little anecdote here. 13 years ago, whatever it was, yeah, 2007, I was going through a divorce. I was finishing up college. I was incredibly stressed out. I was sleeping not hardly at all. I was drinking alcohol way too much. But if you would look at me, I looked what people would consider healthy. I weighed probably 50 pounds less than I weigh now. So like if the, what the traditional thought of what healthy is, was me, and if you put me up to me where I am now and me 13 years ago, which one is healthier? It, most people would choose that person who drank too much, slept, didn't sleep enough to the person I am now. And I know for a fact that I am healthier now. And it's just so, I mean, I can, I can totally relate to what you say. You could, you haven't been put in that situation. I have, I, I know how that feels. Yeah. And I think these are the stories that we really need to listen to and need to believe. So similar to, to other types of activism, my role as a dietitian, especially living in a, a straight sized body and carrying that thin privilege that, you know, basically shields me from that weight stigma and fat phobia. My job, you know, is to really listen and believe clients and say, okay, I hear you. I recognize 
crisis. Let's, let's see what we can do about it. My, my job at this point is not to be the food police. It never was, but mm -hmm. really about empowering them to make a choice. And then again, that non-judgmental aspect comes into it as well, because if 2020 has taught us nothing else, it's that certain things, you know, have to fall to the back burner. We can't keep all the balls in the air and it's not any better morally to say, I can't, or I don't want to prioritize my health right now. Other things have to take priority. And when someone makes that decision, it's ultimately their body. They're the expert of themselves and their lifestyle. And it's not upon anybody else from the outside looking in to pass any type of moral judgment about what they might perceive as a lack of interest in pursuing health or wellness. We don't know what someone's going through. We don't know what their unique situation looks like or what decisions they have to make day to day and, and how they live. So it's really about reframing and reteaching that, okay, we have to take everything that we once learned and believed about health and really start from scratch. We need to burn that old belief system down and recognize that it is harmful and it continues to, you know, cause issues and problems and really bad experiences for so many people and say, there's another way to do it. And it's led by, again, the people who do have those lived experiences to base it on. And we, we in turn have to fall in line and say, okay, we're going to listen, we're going to believe, and we're going to support this. No, oh, that's, that's so great. It's a, it's a wonderful approach. And it is, it, it's, a, it's an individualized, because you don't know, you have no idea what it's like for a certain person. And, you know, their food choices, their lifestyle decisions. I mean, that is, you're right, it's totally up to them. And we have to be sensitive to that. There has to be so much less judgment surrounding that mm -hmm. for people to to thrive. I mean, because we we are it's, it's a it's a very judgment driven society that we have created here. And that needs to stop. That needs to go away. And you know, that's, that's true across the board. I mean, I know it's true in agriculture, uh, you know, the primarily the people who to listen to this podcast, and that's a big part of this podcast is removing that judgment and trying to get people to see one another for the positive thing and 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 maybe a, uh, not a little bit a, a lot of empathy yeah well and i appreciate that you've been so open to hearing about it because i have to say this this description or the first time someone hears about it is usually met with a lot of questioning and often a lot of pushback and i do believe in in staying open-minded staying skeptical asking hard questions but one of the biggest criticisms of this approach is like okay, well, show me the science. Here's what the science looks like. This is what we know from the existing nutrition science or you know, public health research, all the rest. And it's, it's absolutely important for me as a dietitian to remain true to the evidence. We cannot mm -hmm. in sure. good faith call ourselves an evidence-based profession if we don't critique the data and stay current on it. And one of the things that really helped me feel comfortable in committing to this approach is because when I took a hard look at the science and thought critically about it and started to form my own opinions based on that, it didn't stand the test. So, you know, I'll, I'll use examples like, you know, we can't control for certain factors. Most of the nutrition science in its current state around weight or, you know, BMI or whatever, it excludes certain factors that we know have a negative in impact on health. Or, you know, we can look to say, there are now more than 100 studies that are published 
in support of, of intuitive eating and really investigating what the outcomes are when this approach is applied. So for, for me, it's almost like this, this comfort zone where if nothing else, I can go back to the, the studies or the research and, you know, kind of pull out whatever is needed to, to support this approach and really validate that, okay, if these stories from individual people aren't enough, we also have this. So I, what I hear is, you know, you, you feel like it's uh, when people like push back about it and, and critique it, you feel like some people um, will say, well, it's totally subjective. And then you come back with it. Oh no, it, it is objective too, but it's, it's a, and we, and we, you know, when we're doing a health assessment, it's always, there's always, you have to take into consideration subjective and objective information. And not one of those is any more important than the other. They just are, it's, it's all a part of a holistic approach. And whenever, whenever you're able to do something that is evidence-based with also taking into consideration the subjective information, you know, that's something that I feel like is a sound approach. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, nutrition science is, is tough. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. It takes yep. a long time. And there are certain things that ethically we just can't do in order to get the questions answered that we want to get answered. So at the end of the day, we're forced to fill in some gaps and, you know, we do the best we can with what we have at the time. But at the same time, we can also recognize that at some point, clinical experience or anecdotal evidence or, you know, centering the patient or the client and operating with compassion and competence, you know, that still has a role in this approach too. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's going to continue to evolve. And I, I hope that studies in the future are more cognizant of the impacts mm -hmm. of, of weight stigma and some of these other social determinants of health. But until then, you know, we do have some existing literature that we can go back to and say, hey, like this is a, a proven positive. There are things that can be gained by using this framework versus what we've been doing up till now. Very good. Well, this has gone really fast for me because I'm, I, I've been incredibly intrigued through the entire time that we've, we've spent talking here. So uh, I appreciate you coming on here tonight, um, but I also want to give you the opportunity to first cover anything you think we might've missed, but second, and maybe more importantly, where can people find you online and learn more about the work that we talked about here tonight? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you as well and really grateful to come on. This is a new audience for me because like I said, my, my world is sort of off in a different sphere, but if anyone's interested to connect, you know, these are great conversations to continue because there's so much nuance. So if anything, just to wrap things up, you know, I just want to emphasize that there is always context and there's always nuance that should be recognized and we should be talking about because this is not something that you can just cram into a quick soundbite or a single tweet and and have someone fully embrace it and get ready to get on board with or it. Or, or even a, a 45 minute podcast exactly. I mean, you know yeah <laughs> yes. i mean i i feel like we could talk forever about this stuff yeah well i'm online i've obviously spent a ton of time on social media twitter is where we first connected so whether uh -huh. it's twitter instagram um you know, Facebook now, apparently TikTok is a thing I do. And I'm <laughs> trying, either... like I'm, I'm trying so hard, but I, I, I have a really hard time with it. Oh, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting phenomenon, but I'm at street smart nutrition or street smart RD for any of those. And then my website is just streetsmartnutrition.com. 
And like I said, a lot of the topics that we've covered tonight or kind of touched on, we'll have either a longer blog post or some other things that I've written attached to it. And yeah, if anyone is curious, you know, just go into it with an open mind. I was super resistant and that discomfort and resistance is fine. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's something that, you know, you have to judge yourself for. Again, this is all about non-judgment. So yeah, keep an open mind. If anything that we've talked about tonight, you know, perks your interest or sounds like something that you relate to, you know, reach out. It's, it's an ongoing conversation. Very cool. Well, I'm for one, am very thankful that we connected and, uh, Hopefully we can uh, maybe dive into some of this in depth more in the future on, on, a, on another episode. Um, I would. Oh, absolutely. I would love that. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, again, I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to keep connecting with you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your night. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.